Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we are back in the podcast studio, something I love to do. I wish I could do more of it. But we're on the phone with a new friend of ours, Dolores Sams Hoy, coming all the way from San Jose, California. Good morning, Dolores, because I know it's early out in San Jose. It's early East Coast time, and I know it's early out in San Jose. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. And uh, thank you for being on the podcast. I say new friend because, and, and this is, you know, I've said this on the podcast before, but it, this is really special. And, and I'll just take a minute here to just talk about this because this is the one thing Dolores and I were talking before I hit the record button about what this podcast is all about and what it's become. And this has never been a commercial for Project Purple for what we do here. Um, we have connected with a lot of people on the podcast that have been involved, whether they've participated in events or, you know, fundraised for us or, you know, came to us via a family member because they had a family member fighting and we, you know, we interviewed that survivor, that fighter. But it's really fascinating to me that, you know, Today, we're recording this podcast, and you and I become connected, not only because of pancreatic cancer, but because of this podcast, because you had commented on a, on a social media post you know, that we recently aired one of our episodes of someone who was fighting, and, and you made a comment, and I think our team reached out to you and you know, began yes. a conversation. So it's just the power of what this community and, and and selfishly I'll say Project Purple for a minute, but you know, just this community and what there is strength in numbers and just having this idea of a podcast and being able to connect people from two parts of the country, you and I here, East Coast, West Coast, you know, to talk about your journey with pancreatic cancer, which we're gonna get into in a minute. But it's just really special. I, I guess with everything that's happening in our world. I'm not going to get emotional here, maybe, but, you know, with, with the pandemic and, you know, just the, the negativity that we see every day in every the media, in the media, but to find the silver lining Dolores in, you know, connecting people for a positive reason is just really, really special. So I just wanted to put that out there for our audience, because I think it's important yes. for our audience to hear that messaging right now that, you know, given as dark as things may seem, you know, that, uh, that they are, that's happening, whether it's COVID or, you know, with cancer and in this case, pancreatic cancer, right. we're able to connect and, and share some really amazing things together. So there's strength in numbers. And, and I really appreciate you coming on the podcast to share your journey. And, you know, the connection is, is almost immediate. Yeah. You, when you um, hear someone's story and you hear they have cancer and then you hear they have pancreatic cancer, it's an almost immediate connection. And I'm sure it's like that for all types of cancers, but I have found um, myself drawn to people and then I find out they've had pancreatic cancer or they've had a family member who had it, but the connection is almost immediate. And I think it's because the awareness isn't as broad Correct. yet as 
some of the other types of cancers. So it's kind of, like you said, strength in numbers. And you find someone and you hear their story and you're like, okay, I, I, I'm not alone. And so the connection is almost immediate in, in any platform. It really is. And, it, and it's one of the most hopeful things because you're hearing that there is hope. There really, really, truly is hope there. And, and I'm thankful for your podcast because I've been able to hear other people's stories um, that give me hope. And I hope that my story will inspire and give someone else hope. Well, I, uh, I know it will. So on that note, Let's get into that story of yours and your journey. And as we always do on our podcast, this is our guest's opportunity to share as much of your background of your journey with pancreatic cancer. If you want to back up a little bit and talk about, you know, family, that's totally up to you. And as I always say, you know, uh, it's, it's your opportunity to share with our audience, your story. So with that, um, as I say as well, the mic is yours. All right. Well, thank you. So I am uh, happily married, a wonderful husband. I have three children, um, one grandson who's the joy of my life. I am the youngest of seven. Um, we had a really rough season, our family did, um, starting with the passing of my father in 2012, I lost one of my older sisters in 2014. I lost my oldest brother to pancreatic cancer in 2016, and we lost our mother in 2017. Mm-hmm. So we've had a lot of loss. Um, not all tied to cancer, obviously, but a lot of loss in our family that has shaped us differently. We've definitely, we've always been close, um, but each loss has brought us more closer. And um, so when I got my diagnosis, it was, it just shook us. Um, I was a a heavy woman and I had started a weight loss program and was doing well and I was feeling not too bad you know um I didn't have immediate symptoms I I didn't think I, I I wasn't believing you know I'd had little twinges in my stomach I'd have little um pain in my back, but I've always had back spasms. I could justify everything. I could justify um, everything I was feeling. When my brother was diagnosed um, in 2016, he, he got his diagnosis August 5th. And from death to diagnosis, it was three months. Wow. And it ravaged him. I did a little bit of research when he was first diagnosed, and I knew the survival rate was like less than 1% or 5% to even get past the first year. But we still held hope 
right? We we held hope that there was something they can do, but by the time they had located and and diagnosed him with pancreatic cancer, he had already gotten jaundiced. He had already lost a tremendous amount of weight um, and was really just in a state of decline to where they even said um, chemo would not help him. And so it was very fast. Hmm. Um, so when I started my weight loss program in January of 2019, I was feeling good. I, I, I knew, you know, the program I had done it before and I was very excited and I was doing well. And I had some friends from church who were, you know, part of my tag team with it. And we were all just kind of doing what we're, you know, what we're supposed to do for the program. And my husband, um, probably about a month, month and a half into it, he's like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. Why? He's like, are you sure you're not sick? And I'm like, why? He goes, because your body looks different. And I said, no, I feel fine. I said, but what I'll do, I said, you know, I, I have been losing weight. I'm doing fine. I was going to the gym, but I was also starting to feel tired. Hmm. And I also had noticed that even though I was doing the program, I was actually losing more weight than what they normally would suggest for the week, you know, weekly or biweekly yeah. or whatever. And I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to call my primary doctor and I'll have, you know, I'll get a physical. I'll let him tell me um, I'm okay and we'll go from there. And he's like, okay. And I said, you know, yeah, I'm tired, working a lot. You know, my two youngest children um, go to a school or my, they went to a school that had, um, dorm living so mm -hmm. it was really just my husband and I and some nights I was like oh I don't feel like cooking I would just pick something up or I wouldn't eat I it never thought that it was my appetite starting to wane I just mm -hmm. thought oh, I'm too lazy I don't feel like cooking a big meal yeah. I'll grab something quick I'll eat a few bites and I'll have it for lunch the next day and so I you know, my sister passed away from uh, uh, pulmonary embolism. So when I went to the doctor and I told him my concerns, I said, you know, um, I'm losing weight. I just want to, you know, have some tests. Um, he ran testing, went into him. He's, he's very happy with the weight loss that I had. Um, I explained to him you know, because I hadn't really seen him in a couple of years. So I explained to him my loss of family members and my brother with pancreatic cancer. And I said, you know, I've been having back pain. I've been having um, some abdominal pain. I, you know, I said, so I'm concerned, you know, is there anything that we can do um, to look for any of these symptoms and and he told me he said he said well you know you're not jaundiced you're not um your weight loss is not too you know rapid you know you could probably 
do maybe 25 more pounds. Um, there's really nothing that we can do to check you as a preventative. There's really nothing that can be done that would not possibly cause something else. Hmm. Meaning the CT scan. Yeah. He did not. He did not want to do that. He did not order it. Um, nothing like that. Just said, you know, you're doing great. Um, and sent me on my way. And blood work, everything was fine. Cholesterol, blood pressure, all of that, fine. Even as a large woman, I never had any of those issues. So I'm like, okay. And then um, my husband was away for a trip. And I just started having, it felt like an upset stomach. And I, <clears throat> excuse me, I was taking Pepto-Bismol, anything, just to settle it. But I stayed crouched in a fetal position the whole time he was gone. I didn't want to eat. My daughter was home. Um, and it was just sleep or take Pepto-Bismol. And my husband said, you know what? Something is not right. And my husband works in the medical field. And I, I call him truly my lifesaver. He said, you know what? I'm going to talk to one of our doctors where I work and explain to her what's been going on. Because I think something's wrong. And he pushed for that. And, you know, with HIPAA, you can only talk so much. Yeah. Um, and so uh, he reached out to one of his surgeons at in his department where he worked, and she called me, and we talked, and I told her what symptoms I had, you know, my brother having it, um, the pains in the back, the pains in the stomach, the weight loss. So I had I had gone to my meeting, and I was down six pounds. And my husband said, okay, next week, if you go and you have another big loss like that, that's when I'm going to step in because something's not right. So the following week, it was seven pounds. Mm. So it was 13 pounds in two weeks. And so that's when he went to one of his doctors and uh, talked to them. And then she called me and she's like, you know, I understand, you know, you have some history of pancreatic cancer, you have some other histories of embolism, you know, the weight loss is a red flag for me. I want to schedule a CT scan for you. And she was very quick to get me scheduled. Um, I think it was just a couple of days later because I was actually going out of town for my nephew's wedding. And, you know, we were all there um, for his wedding. And my brother, my other oldest brother, walked in and saw me. He didn't tell me at the time. But later, he told me, as soon as I saw you, I knew you had pancreatic cancer. Mm. Because you looked just like our brother Bill. I was starting to get the shallow face. I, I didn't have jaundice and I still don't to this day, but he said, I went to my room 
And I was so upset because I knew. And that was before I even had the CT scan. So I got, and I had been sick, and even that weekend, trying just to muster up, just to eat. Um, and part of part of the symptoms is you have a change in your bowels. Mm-hmm. You, you know, sometimes your bowel movements are like pebbles. Sometimes it's diarrhea. Sometimes it's dark and tarry. I had all of that. And so I was trying not to eat certain things, thinking it was making me gassy, because I also thought a lot of the symptoms are um, symptomatic of IBS. Mm -hmm. And that's what I truly was thinking I was having. In the back of my head, I kind of thought, oh, please, God, don't let me have cancer. Don't let me have pancreatic cancer. So I... I thought about it, but I truly had convinced myself it's IBS. So we get back that Sunday, and that's uh, the day that I have the scan. And um, they had told me, you know, they would call me uh, probably Monday or Tuesday. So I go on to work. And... It's nerve-wracking to be waiting for your results, and you don't really want to necessarily hear it over the phone, but you want to know something. You just want to know what's wrong with me. I know I'm not feeling right. What is it, and what can we do to fix it? So while I was at work Monday, you know, they hadn't heard anything, hadn't heard anything, and our provider, they have what they call a tumor board. Mm Mm-hmm every Monday where they present cases. Um, And so apparently mine had gotten presented that day. And I heard later in the afternoon from the doctor who scheduled uh, the CT that I in fact had a mass on my pancreas and they immediately got into the motions of biopsy, um, setting up an oncology team because we had such a delay between my primary not ordering a CT scan and the surgeon ordering it. And so they wanted to start me on treatment right away. And as that afternoon that I found out, I immediately called our pastor and his wife. And I asked if my husband and I, could meet them at their home because I needed to get in touch with all of my siblings and let them know what was going on. But I didn't want to do it at home because my kids were home Mm. and I didn't want to tell them until we knew for sure that it was cancer. So we went over there, did a lot of praying, a lot of crying, um, And I called each of my siblings and let them know that they found a mass. I was going to be going in for a biopsy. And after the biopsy, I would get the results. And then we would know where to go from there. But just, I wanted you informed. And I want you to be praying. Because whatever it is, I have to fight this. 
We've suffered way too much loss. I didn't want us to have to go through another one. My son was a, a senior in high school. My daughter, a freshman in high school. I have a grandson. I, my oldest daughter is doing well. I want our, our life just to continue as best it can. So let's just keep praying. And we decided not to tell the kids until I actually got the diagnosis. So there was a lot of um, appointments that were happening that, um, for all intents, I really did have to keep the truth from my kids. And I'm, I'm not a big believer of that. But I knew they would have questions that I didn't have answers to. And so I wanted to have as much information to be able to tell them before, um, you know, we, everybody started to worry. I didn't want everybody to worry unnecessarily, but I knew I had the mass. And so that was the longest week ever, just waiting to have all these procedures done, all these tests done to get the results. And as soon as I left, I started, I had always heard, and I knew from my brother, there's, you're going to get a lot of information just thrown at you. And already it was overwhelming for me. And so I started calling some of my really close girlfriends and I said, you know, I, I need you to be on my team because I don't have the wherewithal to try and do research and to try and decipher all this information. When I have to go in for my diagnosis, I would like for you to be there so you can take notes. You can ask questions that I know my husband and I are not going to remember to ask. And then I started talking about my kids and, okay, you know, my son is, was very close to everyone who passed and you know we have to watch this and this for him and for my daughters we have to watch this and this you know I was I went into mode of protection mama bear mm -hmm. I have to protect everybody I have to make sure that things are in order for my husband my kids you know my siblings because even though I'm the youngest they always tell me I'm the bossiest. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I always tell them, it's not that I'm bossy. Sorry, my alarm is going off. I tell them, it's not that I'm bossy. I just know how to get you to do what I want. <laughs> so uh, I immediately kind of went into that mode, like, we got to do this, 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 and this, you know, just to make sure that everybody else was going to be taken care of. That became like front and center of my mind. So we went the week, um, we went the week with secrecy, you know, which was hard. A lot of tears shed between my husband and I. He was trying to, um, being in the medical field also, trying to find information. And that's one of the hardest positions that I feel is the most difficult, you know, that of a caregiver. And, but he was my caregiver and 
also, it seemed like sometimes I was his patient because he was trying so hard to find things that would work for me to do research. It, it was too much double duty for him. It was, and I felt horrible about that, but that was, that became his mission. And so we waited and I had an appointment with my oncologist on April 9th and I had my support team and I had asked members of our church to meet us at my home. I had asked my kids to come home and I asked all of those who are out of state to be ready for a call that when I got the results, I would tell everybody the same day. And so that's what we did. We went to my oncologist. He told me that um, with where it was, I have a hernia. I was diagnosed with a hiatal hernia years ago, my first year out of college. But it never bothered me. I never, you know, I didn't have to have it repaired, nothing. It, and he said at that time that the hernia actually helped save my life because it had pushed up a lot of my organs away from nerves that um, could be possible for me to have surgery. And, you know, we needed to get some reduction, so I was going to do chemo. We would do three months of chemo, then I'd have surgery, and then three more months of chemo, and believed at that time that they would be able to uh, make me cancer-free. And so that was my goal. Let me get through these three months, let me get this surgery, and then three more months, I can do this. I can do this. And that's how I presented it to everyone else. Listen, this is going to be tough. I need everybody to shore up and be ready. You know, I had to take this class. It's not going to be easy, but we can do it. We can do it. Our doctor said he's talking cure. And that's what I lived up. So I want to jump in here for a second, Dolores. Mm -hmm. So... In terms of timing, just to give our audience kind of a, a timeline here. So your brother passes away in 16, three months from diagnosis to being deceased with pancreatic cancer. Mm -hmm. And then in January of 19, you start this weight loss program. But mm -hmm. you notice right away that, and your husband notices, like you have some of these issues. And then you're officially diagnosed in April, on April 9th, but yes. you meet with, when did you have the, the, uh, the CT scan? Was it in March or was it in? I had the CT scan March 31st. Okay. So you, so technically, I mean, I guess we can say, you know, January and February were those months where, you know, it was kind of inconclusive what was going on. You had all these issues. And I know this is kind of a loaded question when I say this. I know you said January 19, you started this weight loss program. And that's kind of when you started to realize like, wow, like, you know, losing 13 pounds in two weeks is not normal um, in that first quarter there. But if you look 
back, it, and I then go again. This is loaded. If you look back, you know, previous years was your, and I know you mentioned the stool thing, and and you know, I think that's something that. Uh, you know, I've always said this disease is is really nasty. It, it is the worst. And my mom's a two-time breast cancer survivor. So I, you know, and she's alive because of the, the things that they have done in terms of advancement for breast cancer, but pancreatic cancer took my dad. But I think PC, pancreatic cancer is the worst in the sense that, you know, it really takes everything away. And, you know, I think one of the things that no one ever wants to talk about is these bowel movements, because I think, and we've had people on the podcast that, and we've, we talked about this, that have had ma major bowel issues Yeah, and not to get gross or, you know, for our audience listening at home to gross anyone out, but right. your bowel movements tell a lot of what's going on in your body. And, and they we've even, and we've even talked about this, like, you know, if you had a smart toilet, you know, we have these smart TVs and these smart cars, but imagine if we had a smart toilet that would diagnose you based on your bowel movements. And, yes. and someone said that's not as far-fetched as we think it is, uh, because I, I think someone uh, that we've had on the podcast said there's there's actually, he looked into it because he's a survivor, and he said there was someone out there that was like floating the idea around uh, to potentially do that. But were your bowel movements before this, like were there, was it the bowel movements or back pain or abdominal pain that, you know, you look back and hindsight's always twenty twenty, And this is why I say this is a loaded question that in 2017, you noticed something wasn't right, but just because of life, because you, you had lost your mom that year, maybe that, you know, it was just the stress of, of dealing with that loss or something else with the kids. I, you know, I know as a parent, I have two kids, my own that, you know, life, life has to go on and you, you get pulled in like 90 different directions when you have kids and a job and, and work and everything. So a lot of times things just go, you know, undiagnosed, let's say. Right. Well, you know, that's just it. I didn't have anything when I look back because, you know, you go through that period of trying to figure out like my husband, he's like, Okay, I think it was here. We started looking back at pictures. You know, we had gone on a cruise. He's like, look, I think it was here. And I'm like, no, babe, it, it wasn't like that. Like, I didn't have, when I look back, even to my dad and my sister and my brother, I didn't have any of those things. Now, I've always had back problems, always. And um, just like spasms or whatever. So I would always justify that, right? It's like, oh, okay. Even going to the chiropractor, I have, I, you know, there's, uh, I would do massages, everything. And there's a certain area in the lower back. It has always hurt me, always. I couldn't have the kids on my back. I couldn't, it would hurt to the touch. And um, my chiropractor um, probably right before I got diagnosed, I was in so much pain and she said, you know, something's not right. You should not be this tender. Hmm. And I think that's when I really started to get the symptoms because it was not too long before I, I got the diagnosis that she hadn't said that. And with the stool, that started, <laughs> that actually started the week that I was telling you my husband was gone. Yeah. But I identified the color to the Pepto-Bismol. Yeah. 
And and usually sometimes, I mean, this is the most frustrating thing with this disease. And and, and like I said, that, that's such a loaded question. And I always feel really bad asking people that because it almost puts them back in, into this mindset of like, wow, I should have recognized this, which which is so unfair, right? So full disclosure here, Dolores, like uh, that's not the point and you shouldn't. And, and I think the one thing that's so frustrating there's so many things, but you know, when we talk about diagnosis is like this early detection and, you know, that's the one frustrating thing that this disease doesn't have is we don't have early detection. So I, I think we get into this exercise of like, oh man, like maybe it was this thing, you know, we've had people that, you know, had had car accidents and just blame the back pain on having, you know, that car accident mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. looking back and, and it's, it's unfair to do to yourself, you know, um, to, to, to think that way that, you know, it's, it's natural. Correct. It, it really it is truly natural, you know, like, and, and my husband has started asking me, and I think it's because he was being asked, Hey, how has she been able to use the bathroom? And I would say, well, you know, I can't use the bathroom because I'm not eating that much. Yeah. I, I justify everything, right? Like, no, it's not this, especially before diagnosis. No. Oh, yeah. And then it's like, oh, and when you think back, it's like, dang, those were hard pebbles. I didn't poop for two or three days, which is was never normal. Yeah. And, and it was black, right? Like, what did I eat? It, all those things, they run in your head. But you never associate it with Hey, I have cancer. Pancreatic right? cancer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's the hard thing, uh, you know, in fairness to you and to the audience listening at home, the symptoms are so vague and naturally rapid weight loss, losing 13 pounds in two weeks is, is not vague. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, uh, wacky bowel movements, like you could have a, a quart of blueberries and you can poop, you know, black, you know, um, and then, you know, you, like you said, you could take Pepto-Bismol and it it can have, you know, effects on your bowel movements, you know, and and having a lower back issue is pretty common. Um, you know, and, and the other thing, you know, listening to your journey, you know, you started to lose weight and work out like naturally you're going to have some aches and pains. So it's not something that is out of the ordinary in terms of, you know, potentially, you know, um, you know, being an issue that you wouldn't necessarily see, you know, in terms of, you know, what may be going on, you know, in your everyday life. So I I think it's hard, you know, and that's where, again, comes back to early detection, you know, breast cancer has mammograms, colon cancer, um, you know, has colonoscopies, prostate cancer has the PSA, which is a blood test, you know, pancreatic cancer has nothing. So- that's Absolutely. what we push for, um, you know, but, you know, it's, it, it's frustrating to say the least. Yes, because time is of the essence, right? It, I mean, it truly, truly is not just with pancreatic cancer, with all cancers, but because you can be in an accelerated position right now, only because maybe you were asymptomatic and you didn't know, you know, until it got really bad. And by then, usually, most people are at stage four. Most people already have jaundice. Most people already are past where they may even be able to have surgery, right? So by the time you get your knowledge, you really, sometimes, often people are just told, just go home, and we're going to try and do what we can to make you comfortable. 
And that's not good enough. It, it just isn't. Um, and so I'm hopeful. I, I am truly hopeful. Each day I get, we get closer and closer to where there may be early detection or maybe someday a cure. But for me, you know, it, it's it's one of those things where it's like you just get slammed with it. <clears throat> and there's, you know, because the survival rate is so low, I immediately, like I was saying, went into like, okay, I have to get this ready. Mm-hmm. I have to get this ready. All before I even started a chemo treatment or before I even had my actual diagnosis it was like okay i gotta get my affairs in order babe we gotta get our wills done because your mind and that your mind will play tricks on you like never before i stayed in a state of prayer but even with that as deep as i believe in god your mind when you're told you have cancer will take over if you let it. But it is a hard-fought battle not to let it take over you. So I, my first chemo treatment was April 18th, nine days after I was diagnosed. And I had kind of prepared, you know, they said, you know, you might feel cold, you, you know, won't be able to reach into the refrigerator, you might get shocked. And I so I prepared for the worst. I had my first treatment. And then shortly after that, before the end of April, I was put in the hospital, I started, I passed out three times in one day, just flat out, boom, I could be walking, pass out, heading up to bed, pass out, going to the bathroom, pass out. And my husband works nights and my daughter and niece were home with me that day that I was doing that. And the last time I passed out, I said, okay, I told my daughter, call your dad. Something's not right. I need to go into the hospital. Well, I was then diagnosed with having uh, diverticulitis. I had never been diagnosed with that before. My dad did have it, um, but apparently the chemo exacerbated it. And so now I'm in the hospital having to get that treated. And I barely had one treatment of chemo, maybe two at that point. I don't really remember, but it seemed like a setback to me. Anytime I had to go to the hospital those first few months, I felt like I was having setbacks. Like it just wasn't working. Something wasn't working. And I was in the hospital for a few days. They got the diverticulitis taken care of. I also had gotten impacted, um, severely impacted and um, dehydrated. Mm. And my primary I went to see him. He he helped with the impaction, but basically just sent me home where I truly should have already been admitted to the hospital because I was dehydrated and all of my numbers were out of whack. I was actually near kidney failure. Oh, my God. 
It was horrible, horrible, horrible. Needless to say, I have a new primary and I'm dealing with a great oncologist. But if we learn nothing these the first few months is we really, really, whether you have pancreatic cancer or any other type of illness, we truly have to advocate for ourselves and we have to have somebody on our side also advocating. And I had that in numbers. I had my husband, I had my siblings, I had my friends truly, truly trying to advocate for me when I could not because I started to lose my voice. And it, truly, physically, I was becoming more soft-spoken, and I just felt like nothing was going to help and no one was listening. And so we got through the, um, the uh, diverticulitis issue, got put on meds for that, and I continued with the chemo. Hmm. But my insomnia, and not my insomnia, my nausea was so bad, so, so bad, I could barely drink water. And so then I started getting dehydrated every other day. And then I had to start going into the infusion clinic just for hydration. I existed, I thought I was eating, but I was really only eating watermelon and cantaloupe. Everything else I would throw up or it felt like it became mush in my mouth. I could not stomach eating. And there again, I started losing weight fast, very, very fast. I probably had two or more hospital days because of dehydration and all of my numbers out of whack. Um, in April, I had another hospital stay on my son's graduation day. I was bound and determined to be at his graduation, wheelchair and all, because by now I'm wheelchair bound. I can barely walk. And we were having a party and everybody's like, you know, you don't look well. You should go to the doctor. And I'm like, I'm going to go because I'm probably dehydrated, but we're still going to have the party tomorrow. And so I went to the hospital, severely dehydrated, but I had a mission. I was not going to miss these milestones with my kids. I, I just could not do that. And so I told them, I don't care what you have to do, but you need to have me released tomorrow because I want to joyfully celebrate my son and his accomplishment of graduating. I do not want to be here. I was in the hospital for his prom. And he had to come with his tuxedo while I was in the hospital. I did not want that for his graduation. And they were really good. They understood. Everybody knew what I wanted. And they helped me do that. But my decline still was going on. I couldn't eat. The, the chemo was very, very toxic. I tried different things tried cannabis i can't that would make me throw up mm. i tried chewies i tried teas nothing would help the insomnia and my husband again i'm his patient and his wife 
bless his heart, I call him truly my true-to-life lifesaver. He was talking to one of his co-workers whose husband, he didn't, he had pancreatic cancer um, and had other underlying symptoms with um, his abdomen, but she told him about a... um, a prescription that totally helped him with his nausea. And so we had to go through insurance for approval for that. And I'm on that. And I'm glad to say, uh, with the exception of my chemo day, I don't suffer through a lot of um, nausea. And I'm so thankful that um, I have a team of support that, is willing to do the research for me because I'm still, even a, over a year into it, I'm still not comfortable. I still get overwhelmed mm. with researching because there's just so much information and a lot of it is so negative. I, 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 I just can't deal with it. So I really put that off on my brother and my best friend and they do it. And sometimes I'll read articles and I'll say, Hey, can you guys check on that for me? Because I just can't do it. I, 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 I I'm not trying to be in that space. So, so what, what was the, I have a question here for you on the chemo. So what was the chemo regimen that they put you on? Okay. So this is where I'm really bad in that I don't remember all of the names mm-hmm. of the medicine. Um, but it was, I was doing chemo every 14 days and I would come home with a ball and that would have to be removed, um, 48 hours after, yep. um, and, and forgive me, because I don't re- remember all of the names, and, and I'm horrible about that. But it was one of the, my girlfriend who looked it up said it was one of the most toxic. Florinox, probably. That, that for sure. Five I remember FU. that. I remember that one. Yeah. It's the most toxic, and it really, I mean, I will send you a picture at my worst. And I hate to describe it this way, but it's how I saw my brother and, and I'm really I'm not trying to be offensive in any way, but it put me, it made me think of um, Holocaust victims, mm-hmm. how you get so shallow. Mm-hmm. And that's how my brother was. And I started to get that way and I remember telling my girlfriends because I had two really good girlfriends that went with me to my chemo every time and it is it is sad sometimes to go there but we would laugh and try to find goodness right because you would see when people would come in that they're in a class you could tell the ones who were diagnosed with it because they had the bag mm-hmm. that our our hospital gave. And so I did the same thing. They take you through the injection clinic, um, the infusion clinic, sorry. And so you would know. And there was, you know, there were some people, they could drive themselves there. There were some people who could walk out as strong as they came in. And I wasn't there. And I kept telling my girlfriends, 
I want to be able to do that because it hit me so hard. I want to be able to do that. And there were some, and I would say, oh, my gosh, she looks so sad. I don't want to look like that. All the while, I was that. They just didn't tell me. I had a different perception in my head about how I truly appeared versus what I really was. Yeah. Well, no one walks around with a mirror in front of them as they walk into chemo, right? It's not like it's the gym. It's not like it's a, you know, planet fitness where there's a lot of mirrors. Were you looking at myself? Well, yeah, I I don't want to, I don't, don't let me get that bad. Right. Poor lady. Don't let me get like that. And then later they're like, you know, we didn't have the heart to tell you, you were already like that. And so I, you know, continued on. And then in August, I had gone for my, it was August 2nd. We just actually acknowledged that date, my husband and I. It was August 2nd. I had gone for my blood work because, you know, you have to do the blood work the day before your chemo to make sure your body is in sync. And I came home. You know, and God bless my sister. I have my oldest sister. She lives in Arizona. um, But she gave up her life to come here to stay with me in May. And so she was taking me to my appointments. She was making sure I was trying to eat. She was making sure I was having my meds. You're taking care of my family. My church started with meals, you know, everything from my support team, from my church to my family to my friends came in line so that I only had to focus on getting better. Mm -hmm. But it was so hard to even get better. I started writing my obituary. I started doing things that I wanted to make sure were taken care of that so that my, when I passed, my family did not have to worry about it. That was the mode I was in. I wasn't necessarily in the mode. I was in the mode to fight, but I was getting so weak that I thought, okay, let me start taking care of stuff so that they don't have to. My support team, I, I would not be here without them I there's just absolutely no way and I started going up to my brother's house he lives about 45 minutes away because he was saying you know I you know we had some remodeling going on because we found mold which that didn't help with me having to fight cancer we found mold in our kitchen and we were in various states of disarray and my brother's like I want you to start coming here it's just a change of scenery And I'm like, okay, but I was still a shell of myself. I was trying to take the cannabis, but it just made me feel like I had no control over my life. It just seemed like I was just existing. And I hated that feeling. That does not work for me. It works for others. And I'm glad that it does, but I know it does not work for me. And then I started to spiral into depression. Um, when I was first diagnosed, I had read a couple of books. Um, I reached out to a couple of groups. Um, but this depression became so dark 
so, so very dark. It was just like I mindlessly watched TV to keep my thoughts away from cancer. I was crying. I, you know, I was trying to be there for everybody else. And my brother told me one day, he says, you have to stop. I understand you are trying to be strong for us, but it's okay for you to be sad. It's okay for you to cry. It's okay for you to be with it. And the one thing I did, my sister taught me this long ago when she lost her husband. You know, I had asked her something to the effect of why you? And she told me, why not me? What makes me so different can't go through a loss. And that stuck with me from my teen years to now. You know, people ask me, why you? Why not? And I honestly, I have never asked why me. Because why not me? What makes me so special from anybody else? I don't want to wish this on anybody. I don't want to say, why not that person? Why that person? Why not me? What makes me so different that I couldn't get it? But what makes me different now is that I can fight it. But those first few months were the darkest. I truly did not think I would live to Christmas. I really didn't. So August 2nd, I went for my blood work. I came home and I fell asleep. And I woke up to calls from the doctor's office, my husband calling me. My, he actually then called my sister. She woke me up. They want me back at the hospital. My numbers were so skewed, they were afraid I would die. Every number, my white, red blood white blood, magnesium, potassium, just out of, out of range for everything. But I wasn't feeling like I was sick. I'm like, oh, I'm asleep and I feel okay. They admit me to the hospital. I was in the hospital until August 17th, just with them trying to get my blood work back into normal range. On August 11th, because I had not been eating, and I truly thought I was eating, but I know it's just a bite here, a bite there. You feel full. You don't want to eat. You're going to throw up. You're going to vomit. It, but I thought I was doing well enough to go home, and they could trust that I would eat. My husband got in touch with a dietitian, and she came and talked to me. And she told me that I was so close to being malnourished that I could die. And she wanted to insert a feeding tube. And I resisted because it felt like another setback to me. And by now, I've been told that... Um, my surgery would have to be pushed back because we weren't getting the shrinkage. Mm -hmm. and so it all just felt like nothing was working. Nothing was working. And I fell into this depression. Then they give me the feeding tube and that feeding tube was my lifesaver. Mm -hmm. While in the hospital, I started to get my voice back. Mm 
I started to feel stronger within a matter of days. And I, I, you know, I told my husband, because I started having visitors, all my elders were visiting me, um, people from church were visiting me. And I'm like, has anybody told you, like, am I dying? Am, am I going to die? <laughs> I mean, I'm having so you many You got all people. these visitors, yeah. Yeah, I'm like, wait, what's going on? Like, has somebody told you I'm going to die? I go, I don't want to die here in this hospital. I don't want to die at home. So you're going to have to get me somewhere. He's like, no, no, people are just, you know, they want to come and see you because they know you've been bad. You know, you've been in a bad spot. But I'm not afraid to die. That's the thing. I'm not afraid to die. I get sad when I think about it because I don't want anybody else to have to grieve. Not afraid of death. I have lived a great life. I have a great family, but I want to be prepared. <laughs> I want to be able to prepare everybody else. I want to have, you know, I like I said, I had started writing my obituary, you know, minus the dates, it, it, all of that. I, my mind really, really played tricks on me. Hey, Dolores, I I, I want to jump in here though. So, like. It's so powerful to hear you say all this, but I, I've got to ask this question before we go any further. That mindset that you have in terms of, you know, and there's a word that I wrote down here. You said protection mode. I say selfless because you have this selfless being like you, you're worried about everyone else. And mm-hmm. that, that, that's selflessness, like, you know, caring for other people and that, that's not something that happens overnight. Do, do you, is there maybe an episode in your life, or a, a tragedy maybe, or something that transpired in your life that made you that way? And I know that's a, that's another loaded question. <laughs> a lot of my questions are loaded, I guess I would say, in the terms that they're not easy. There's no perfect answer to that. But it, just looking back, and the reason why I say this is like, we're going to do research on this. And I've, I've said this before in the podcast that there's an amazing arc that these survivors and fighters that this journey that you are on along with them, that they mm-hmm. go through, that they have these life experiences early on in life. And mm-hmm. sometimes they never realize why that happened, but then they go through this thing at some point in that arc called pancreatic cancer. And then it all yeah. makes sense. I I can't say um, there was one event over another. I, I have always been fiercely protective. Um, you know, my father was an alcoholic, and I lived through that. Um, it threw his weaknesses of, of being within the alcoholism, and when he was sober, you know, at the the last of his years were um, uh, sober. And, but I think it was when I became a mother that I became even more protective, mm. more wanting to help and make sure, you know, my old, my oldest daughter lost her mother to breast cancer. And I was very protective of, of, you know, of her young age. She was barely turning 13 when she lost her mother. 
Um, but I had a sense of needing to help it to help her deal with it meant meaning helping her mother, you know, as best as we could and, and trying, and I became more protective. And I, I would say if I look back, that's probably where my, and it became more intense for me to be protective, mm-hmm. you know, then I had my son, then I had my daughter, um, and I've always, I've, I'm, I've always told people it takes a lot for me to get mad. And when I finally do, you will know it, but I'm also very protective and, you know, I'm going to protect mine. So if you're coming at us like that and you make me mad, you will know, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not always soft-spoken and I'm not always um, um, I've never been shy but you know for me and mine I will I will fight till the bitter end and so it was really weird for me to be in a position where I didn't feel that way in the beginning and so you know every pushback would put me into tears And it would put me down a road of depression. And when I was in the hospital and they wanted to insert the feeding tube and I started feeling better, I was like, yeah, I can do this. Until they said, we want you to go home with it. Another setback. I truly saw that as a setback. I'm like, no, I'll be able to eat. Let me just go home. I'll prove it to you. I can eat. I'll do it. I'll do it. I just didn't want to come home with it. And we settled it. I wasn't going to come home with it. And my husband called me one night and he said, babe, I just want to understand why you won't come home with the feeding tube. I don't want you to think of it as a setback. Think of it as an aid for you. Think of it as something that's building you up again. Don't think of it as a setback because look at how you've been you're talking more you're walking you and I by that time I even looked in the mirror and I was still very shallow but it was the first time that I actually looked and saw just how ravaged I had become and that gave me a little more determination to come home with the feeding tube. So I called the doctor, the dietitian. I said, okay, I talked to my husband. I've changed my mind. I will go home with the feeding tube. So in August, August 17th, I was released from the hospital. I had a 12 day stay. I, that was the day my son was moving into his college dorm. That was the day my daughter was moving into her high school dorm. And I was missing all of it. And so I came home with the feeding tube. My sister learned how to put the bags on. And that started my life, right? I truly got a second chance at life with that feeding tube. I started eating. After I came out of the hospital, my doctor changed my regimen. 
he acknowledged that it was just too toxic. And we switched to another one, which I still don't know the names. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but this one was less toxic, but it also meant that it was less aggressive. Um, I started to show some growth um, a few months later. But this regimen gave me life. Like, every day that I prayed for life, this new regimen, I was going to the gym. I was eating. And I mean, I was eating. Like, I was making up for lost time. I, I, I would have to show you pictures. I could eat two plates of breakfast, two plates of lunch, and then still snacks in between. That's how good I felt. And, you know, I there was a sermon at church years ago that our pastor preached on, and he, it was talking about providence and how things were in order. You know, you meet this person because of this. You meet this person because of this. And I truly have hung on to that. And my husband in the early days used to tell me, I wish I, I wish it were me. I wish I could take it from you and it be me. And I would tell him, but it's not yours to carry. If it were, you would have it. It's mine to carry. I don't want it to be anybody else. It's in line. All these people I'm meeting, all these people you've talked to, there's a reason we've met them. And when I got that feeding tube and I had been praying, God, please, just give me more days. Just give me more days. I had a mind shift. And my brother had been telling me, you know, you got to get in the sun as best you can. You know, with the treatments, you can't be in the sun a lot. But the sun you know, gives you that vitamin D. It helps you stay out of the dark areas. And my brother kept saying, you know, you, you got to get out of the dark environment. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. And I had a mind shift. He used, he used to tell me, my brother Marvin, he said, you know, I never really prayed for you to have surgery. I prayed for you to keep getting more time because advancements come along the more time you get. Surgery may not always be your option. And eventually, surgery was moved off the table for me. Um, found out that my um, arteries are too twisted um, within the tumor. But that's what the doctors say. And I believe that God can twist those things. And I had been asking and asking and in my prayers, just give me more time. And he's doing that. And then my mind shift came that if I'm going to ask for more time, I cannot spend it depressed. I cannot spend it just sleeping in bed. Now, don't get me wrong. You have your ebbs and flows. You feel bad. You feel physically bad. You know, you're going to have those days. But I decided I needed to start my day with some joy. And I needed to end my day with some joy. 
And I have lived that way ever since I got this new life after the feeding tube. I had never been to Hawaii. Always wanted to go to Hawaii, but I had never been to Hawaii. And my husband, um, we were going to celebrate our 20th anniversary before I got diagnosed. We met on a cruise ship and we were going to take um, that same cruise to celebrate uh, celebrate our 20th anniversary. When I got diagnosed, we canceled that trip and, you know, started going through the motions of just trying to live. So in um, November, you know, I'm doing well. This new treatment, I'm able to go to the gym, I'm eating, I'm feeling good, um, I'm still going every two weeks. And my husband says, you know, let's go to Hawaii. We can't go overseas. Let's go to Hawaii. I went to Hawaii with my feeding tube. And I was okay with that because I had life. I was spending time with my kids. I was spending time with my grandson. And I was having joy every day. You know, I read something in one of the books in the earlier days where it says when you're facing um, a terminal illness, you get a new perspective. You see things differently. You know, like I can enjoy flowers differently than somebody else because I may not see those flowers tomorrow. I can enjoy a TV show differently because I might not see that TV show tomorrow. So I have a different perspective on things because I don't know when my last day will be, but I'm going to enjoy every day I have until that day comes. And so I started um, just finding joy in every, every day because I could not in good conscience ask God to give me more time and I squandered. And so I have dance parties via Zoom with my friends. My kids came home because of this virus. And that gave me time that I would never have had because they're busy. My son was in college. He plays basketball. My daughter had her freshman year in high school. You know, my oldest daughter is a new mother. And so when this virus came and everybody had to come home, that, and I hate we've had so many deaths with it, but that has blessed me in ways that people may not understand. I was given more time with family. I'm given more, my kids indulge my TikTok obsession. <laughs> um, I've had to go solo because now they're like, mom, you're doing too much. <laughs> but, but I, and I, I, I just have this joy every day, even when I'm, you know, I had a first reaction um to the chemo that now every time i go they give me benadryl it makes me sleep 
sleep right through the chemo. And then I'm sleepy all day and I'm a little nauseous. But you know what? I'm okay with that because it tells me that I'm still here. I, I hate it. You know, I hate that I have to be tethered to a ball for two days, but it's still giving me life. And every goalpost that was pushed out or taken from me, I'm okay with that now, right? I know I can't have surgery, but that doesn't mean I, I still believe one day I am going to go into my doctor's office and he's going to have results for a scan and he is not going to know what to say because they won't see any evidence. I'm going to be a Ned. No evidence of disease. I firmly believe that. And I live with that every day. Now, it may not happen. I'm not delusional. I know I have one of the worst cancers you can ever get. But I have to have hope. I have to have hope that, hey, a cure may come. Each day I live, we may be closer to a cure. I don't know. But I'm going to live as if I don't have it. You know, I know I, I know I have it. I lost my hair. I've lost a lot of weight. I'm not as strong. There's some things I can do, some things I can't do. But those things that I can do, I can dance. I can laugh. I can cook. Oh, my gosh. There's so many things I can do that I couldn't do before. And so, you know, my mindset now is, hey, every day I wake up, that's a great day. You know, I've had my cancer markers when I first started was 24,000. I got as low as 700. I'm back up to 5,000, and I stay in the range between 5,000, 3,000, but we don't panic about that. I know that's not the only determinant of how you're doing. I was initially diagnosed with stage 3, but after I had some weight loss and other scans, they determined that I was actually stage four and I was no longer a candidate for surgery. Um, but like I said, that doesn't mean it will never happen. It just means I don't focus on it because I have still a lot of life to live. I truly believe that I have many years. We have done some walks, you know, with pancreatic cancer. Um, fundraisers and things and I've listened to people and one survivor she had 13 years and counting and I thought to myself why can't I have 14 why can't I have 15 16 17 why can't I right I'm not thinking why me as far as why I have it I'm thinking why can't I now have all these years, and I truly believe I will. I have days where I I look at my friends and I tell them, is it weird that I don't feel sick? Hmm. Like, I know I have cancer, but I don't feel like I'm terminal. It's powerful stuff, Dolores. it, It truly is. The mind 
will try to play tricks on you and you have to keep hope because if you don't have hope it the lack of hope can kill you faster than the cancer can oh without a doubt without a doubt without a doubt i got a question a couple questions here for you um genetics now saying that you had a brother you had some other cancer in the family Mm -hmm. i'm sure that your oncologist did genetic testing was there anything that they found No, they said it was familiar. So my sister, who passed away from pulmonary embolism, Mm -hmm. she actually had colon cancer many years ago. So we all, you know, once you have colon cancer in the family, you know, even in my, I was in my late 20s, early 30s, and already having to do the colonoscopies every other year, you know, just because colon cancer was in our family. So when I was diagnosed, um, we did the genetic testing, and they came back and said, it's familial, not genetic. Um, Hmm. But I also impressed upon all of my siblings to also be, you know, genetic testing, especially my my brothers. My brother has two daughters, and so I, you know, told my sister-in-law, get them tested. but no one's come back. It's negative, right? Or Yeah. You know, it'd be yeah. interesting. I mean, I know a guy at Harvard that we've had on the podcast that just loves hearing stories of families with lots of cancer. And the reason being, mm-hmm. I say loves, because this is what he does. He, can, he really breaks down the genetics. And, you know, mm-hmm. I think the one thing that you said, so many powerful nuggets, but one thing that I'll bring up right now is, you know, the longer that you're fighting, there's more, there's so much that's happening so much. And I've said this on the podcast before, you know, this is a game. It's a game of, of, you know, being in the game as long as you can for that game changer. And, you know, there's so much that's happening in genetics. And and the more that we know, the more that potentially could present a game changer in a treatment protocol that, you know, can change this whole battle, you know, with this disease. So it's, uh, you know, the, the longer that you stay in this fight, the more of a likelihood of a game changer and, you know, the more that we learn about families and, and, you know, something, you know, that's going on that potentially is in the genes, you know, is a potential for a game changer to happen. So it's, it's really powerful for families to understand that because, uh, you know, genetics plays a big part, unfortunately, in cancer, you know, genealogy. really, really does. And I still would, um, suggest to my family, Hey, keep, keep getting tested because maybe we had a false reading, you know, you know, well, it changes and it changes, you know, over time. I mean, that's like, we, we deal a lot with families, you know, and people say, well, I got tested 10 years ago. Well, that that so much has changed, you know, so much has changed in the five years. And that's like a fascinating thing with technology. I think we're going to ever evolve and ever change so quickly that, you know, the science is not going to be able to keep up with the technology, you know, in terms of the speed, you know, so right now things are moving so fast in the genetics space in particular, because there's such a large focus in that, because we do know with pancreatic cancer, at least that, you know, 10% of these cases are some sort of genetic genetic mutation, you know, and, and we know yeah. there's a reason for that happening, that it's passed on through the family lines. So it's, uh, it's something, you know, for our listeners to really take to heart, you know, because genetics play such a big part in this disease right now and, and many other diseases. 
I've got really, and it's very easy, you know, to get tested. Oh yeah, you it's know? a blood test or a swab, depending on yeah. you know. And now most insurance companies will pay for it. There's a lot of groups out there that will actually provide, you know, it for free. Quite honestly, yeah. Um, yeah. you know. And so I think years ago it was thousands of dollars, and now the pricing model has just come down because of those advances in technology. Yes, and and every day, you know, that we can talk to our congressmen and everything just to get funding. It's a good day. Absolutely. You know? So every, every, every chemo that I have, every nausea day that I have, even the chemo insomnia that I go through, I'm okay with it because I'm still alive. And maybe tomorrow another advancement will take place. And that's one thing that I also had to uh, hang on to from my brother. He's like, I don't, I don't pray for your surgery because I'm praying for the days. I'm praying for days because each day you have is a closer day you can get to a cure. And I hang on that. And I hang on, you know, just trying to live life. People have always asked me, do you have a, um, what do they call it? A bucket list. Mm-hmm. No, I, I've never truly never have had a bucket list. It was like, hey, one day I want to go here. All right, well, I'll pay for that and I'll go do it. I've never written down saying before I die, I want this, this and this. And I still don't have that today because my focus is not I'm going to die. My focus is I'm going to stick around to be able to do that. Now, I do say that I am retired because I'm not able to work. But anytime somebody says, hey, you want to go somewhere? Hey, I have a backpack. I'm ready. I'm not going to miss these opportunities because I don't know when they're going to come again. I don't know, you know, what day I may not be here. But that's for everybody. Nobody knows when your day is up. But because I have something that makes me more likely to maybe die before somebody else. I'm not going to pass up opportunities for joy. I'm not going to pass up opportunities to spend time with my kids. I'm not going to pass up opportunities to spend time with friends and family. And I told my doctor, I said, you know, you need to get on this side of the train that I'm going to be okay. Because I don't need anybody who's not believing that I'm going to be okay. If you're, if you can't do that, I need to have somebody else who will. Because I need positivity and I need hope and I need joy because outside of that, that will take me into a dark path. And I'm not trying to live my life like that. Sure. I have pancreatic cancer. It took me a long time to even say that. Sure. I have it, but that does not define me. It's just part of me. It is just a, it's a very big part. It has a lot of my attention, but it's not going to keep me from living my life. I cannot do that. And when I got that mindset, my whole world changed. Like, literally, I have days where I don't feel sick. That if, because I wanted to open up a jar and I couldn't, that's my reminder, but hey, I have my son do it, right? And, and I move on. I'm not going to, 
the mindset is the thing that we have to lean on the most. We have to stay positive. Like for, for me, my shift also came where I'm going to spend time with people who want to spend time with me. So if you ask me to do something and I'm able and I feel well, I'm doing it. The same if I ask you, if you tell me no, there's no hard feelings, I'm moving on to the next person. I don't have time for petty drama. And I never have. Not really. I've never been, really been that type of person. But even more so, I don't have the time or the wherewithal to be involved with, I call it nonsense, time waster, hurt feelings. People are hurt. People are sad for you. But hey, let's deal with whatever the issue is and then let's move on. We can't keep dragging negativity with us it does not help us in this fight it really does not help us it's powerful stuff i mean i i, I think you you've said so many amazing powerful nuggets here and, and i think the one thing is and i've got one last question for you here dolores but you know we we all have 24 hours in a day and what we do with those 24 hours is really determined on us and no one else and you know not to say that, you know, a diagnosis of cancer, you know, isn't hard, isn't a challenge. I don't want this to come across that way, but you still have the same 24 hours that I have. And I yep. think sometimes when you don't, unfortunately, uh, deal with this or have someone that you're dealing with this, you can go about life really kind of selfishly, not selfless, but very selfishly and not necessarily mm -hmm. worry about other things and not really take advantage of those 24 hours. Right. But then right. having a diagnosis and realizing what the reality is or having a loved one go through that, it becomes very quickly that those 24 hours become very, very valuable and critical to how you use them and what you do in very that time. Very precious. Very precious. You know, so I, I think everything you've said has been so powerful and I hope our audience really takes to heart. You know, that the mind is an amazing thing. And I've always said, and I've always been really intrigued by, you know, people with disabilities and things that not everyone has physically, mentally, financially, but still mm -hmm. achieve greatness. And yes. to me, that's just, you know, your, your mental ability to just take things and go and not worry about all this other noise on the outside or how society says certain things should be and, and people find success, they find ways. Um, and a lot of it is because of their mental aptitude to be able to do that and fighting cancer isn't any different. Um, no. You know, from a mental aspect, I know from a physical right. aspect, sometimes the body just has had enough. Um, but you know, from a mental aspect, you know, your, your mind can do some amazing things. Amazing, it, 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 amazing, powerful things. Absolutely, absolutely. And like I said, I'm not trying to, um, I'm not, I'm not in a false sense of, of security, right? Mm -hmm. I understand. I understand the, you know, the toll it takes on the family. I understand the toll it takes on friends, the sadness because you're, you know, 
were always on edge about, okay, you don't feel well. What is this? You know, but right now I have to focus on the other things that make me feel good. You know, every time we lose somebody, John Lewis, for example, pancreatic cancer, it saddens me. I'm sad. I'm sad when I hear updates about um, Alex Trebek and all these other famous people that now, now, because I have it, it seems like I hear more of it. And it's sad, but I also see them living their lives. Yeah. And that's why I said earlier, you have that immediate connection because when you get that mindset to live life as best you can with what you have, though it's sad to lose them, they had good days. And yeah. they still have good days in case of Alice Trebek or any other person going through it and myself because of the mind. And if there's anything that I can say to someone today and they hear it, it is hard. It really, really, really is hard to not fall into the traps of the depression and you will have it. And that's okay. It doesn't make you less of a person. It doesn't make you less of a patient because you have these things. These are all part of your journey, your diagnosis. You're going to go through it. But you have to want to fight to have some happiness. And that is actually a hard fight, but it's one that you can win. Absolutely. You take it day by day. Sure, I could have a bad day, but I'm not going to end my day bad. If I have to dance it out by myself or if I have to watch <laughs> a comedy show, I read my Bible, I pray, I am not going to end the day on a bad note. So then when I wake up in the morning, I also wake up on a good note. The very fact that my eyes open and I can get out of bed that starts my day with joy and that's how I have to live every day cancer or no cancer even when they tell me I no longer have it I have to continue to live this way powerful it's powerful stuff Dolores I have one last question for you Okay. And this is, uh, I, I always preface this one. If you've listened to the podcast, you'll probably, it'll sound familiar once I say it. Um, there's no right or wrong answer to this. It is a loaded question as all most of my questions <laughs> are, I guess, now that I'm coming to realize. In your experience and what you've gone through and in your journey, how do you define the words pancreatic cancer? Mm. Terrible. That is the word that I say when I talk about it. It is one of the most terrible diseases that anyone can ever have. Um, and brutal. Very brutal. And it is no respecter of person. It, you know, you can read the statistics and yes, African Americans may, um, be more prone to it because of extenuating circumstances or what have you. But this is a disease and all cancers that does not care. They don't care who you are. They don't care. It doesn't care um, 
your wealth. It doesn't care your sex. It is the most terrible and brutal disease that I've come across, mainly personally and seeing my brother. But I used to be afraid to say it. But I'm no longer afraid to say it because I have it. I have pancreatic cancer, but I'm not going to let that define me as brutal and as terrible and as harsh as it is. It is not going to define me. Powerful. There's no right or wrong to that either. I know some people think that there's a there's a right or wrong to that, and and there isn't. No, that's um, just it's, how it's it's a horrible horrible disease. It really is because you can't. By the time you find it, you're well deep into the throes of it. Every but every almost every other thing, you get a little um, warning or something. This one and there's so many symptoms that it could be other things Mm -hmm. that they don't think about that first and that's why it's so terrible because by the time you find it oftentimes you're past where they think they can help you but that doesn't mean you don't fight you still gotta fight still gotta fight powerful so powerful last thing here for our audience Dolores, if there is someone listening to this podcast and maybe they've been diagnosed or maybe quite possibly it's a family member and they want to connect with you, where's the best place for our audience to connect with you? They can call me. They can email me. I'm on Facebook, but I don't do a lot of that. I'm, yeah, I have social media, um, but a phone call, an email, I will give you all of my information. I have no problem talking uh, to anyone. So what's your phone Even number then? Let's look at my... your phone number then here. Okay, it's 408-836-8869. Awesome. My email is D is in David, S is in Sam, H is in Henry, 216 at gmail.com. Awesome. And you, anybody can call, you know, I've met some amazing people. I, I came into contact with this young lady. She's on the East coast. Um, I, at my, at my year anniversary, my friends, my church members did a parade for me um, to celebrate my year because a year after diagnosis is a huge milestone, but we were, you know, in the throes of Corona. So they surprised me with, um, with uh, a parade and the news was here. Um, And that was, I'm still speechless over this, this event, but I met through that because we posted it. I met this young lady who lost her father to pancreatic cancer. Mm. And I tell her all the time, she can call me. We, you know, I don't, I have not physically met her. 
Um, she's a teenager. She's in high school. But that's how, when I say you get the immediate connection, she reached out because she saw it. And she says, I wish, you know, my dad was still here. He had it. And I'm able to talk to her. You know, she has ups and downs. It's it's rough navigating as a teenager a loss of a parent. But again, like you said, we're friends. We have that immediate connection. So I will never refuse to talk to someone via email, phone, anything. I will always be available. My journey is different from everybody else's. But we oftentimes need to connect with somebody who does know. They know some of the things that you've been going through. And so I am here. I will be here until I am not. My, I have a purpose. I don't know exactly what that everyday purpose is. But I will be here for anyone who wants to call just to talk or even just to have me sit on the phone and be silent. I can do that. It's powerful. Dolores, from all of us at Project Purple, thank you for coming on our podcast and sharing your journey. And, you know, I, I've been taking notes this whole time. And, and you know, the one thing that just struck me when you said it, and, and you said it twice uh, that I recall, you may have said it a couple of times, is why not me and that powerful mindset? And I hope our audience takes that and really that powerful message and, you know, and, and there's mm -hmm. so much as we started the podcast about the negativity in the world. Uh, there's so much negativity in the world right now, but yeah. there's so much positivity and, and you're shining such a, a bright light with your mental mm -hmm. attitude and your positivity towards fighting the worst cancer out there. So we really appreciate you coming on our podcast and giving us the opportunity to share your story and hopefully oh. our audience enjoys it. I hope so. And I, I am grateful to have this platform. And I thank you and your team for reaching out. And I just did round 31. I will have round 32 next week. And, you know, for every milestone that we hit, we celebrate it. Whether it's round one, round 15, we have to get in the mindset of celebrating that because we are here to have it. And so I thank you for letting me be able to share my story. And I hope it brings encouragement to those out there um, that we can live through this and we, um, we can have great days. We will. We will. I know we will have great days. So as we say here at Project Purple, that's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple podcast. If you like what you heard today, please share our podcast, follow us where you listen to podcasts, and until next time, be safe and thanks for listening. Yeah.